If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ on this second Sunday of Advent. Here at Mayflower, no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, this liturgical season that helps us step out of the hustle and bustle that we might cultivate something outside the norm. We might cultivate hope, peace, joy, and love. As we move through this season together, our theme comes from the line from Mary's song of protest and praise. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. From generation to generation, the phrase reminds us of the ways our lives, histories, and stories are interconnected and woven together. The work of God is always unfolding in us and through us. This Advent, we will remember the ways that we belong to a story etched in the wrinkles of time, to generations that have come before and will come after, to a love that will not let us go. Let's bow our heads together. It's clear, Holy One, that John the Baptist had not read how to win friends and influence people. His clothing of camel hair was not what the cool kids were wearing. Even his meals of locusts and wild honey didn't inspire the Keep It Local movement to offer him a seat at the lunch table. But none of that made him wrong, which makes us wonder what messages we're missing simply because we don't like the packaging. How often do we ask, well, what was she wearing? Or can't they speak English? It seems, though, that the people back then may have been more open-minded and open-hearted than we are, for the text tells us that they came to the riverside anyway, confessing and repenting. We are not really into that ourselves. What might happen if we dip our toes in the waters of confession and repentance? Would we be swept away by guilt and shame? Or would it wash away our pride 
our fear, our smugness, those impediments to living abundantly and in communion with one another and with you. Grant us wisdom and courage, Holy One, to recognize the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Open our hearts that we might confess what needs confessing and repent what needs repenting. We pray in the name of our teacher, Jesus, who also came confessing and repenting. Amen. Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here, I'm, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now, we don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but we do know that that story is true. This is what we stay, say about stories like this one, those stories that require us to suspend our understanding of science, like in the case of a virgin giving birth. We also say this about stories that are uncomfortable because of sex or violence or cultural differences or those stories that hit just a little too close to home. This is arguably one of the most uncomfortable passages in the whole of scripture. A story of an ordinary girl on the cusp of womanhood who is approached by a powerful male figure who tells her what is going to happen to her body, even though most of us do not take this story literally. It seems strange or wrong or evasive not to acknowledge that this is Indeed, what happens in the story? In the moment between the angel saying, this is what you will do, and Mary's acceptance, 
we are compelled to ask, does Mary have a choice here? Is this a Me Too story? Maybe that's why they tried to keep women out of the pulpit for so long. If these stories, if these questions about these stories had been asked early and more often from the pulpit, perhaps we might not still be fighting for the right to body autonomy 2,000 years later. Some, explains theologian Will Gaffney, rush to find proof of Mary's consent or argue that contemporary notions of consent do not apply to ancient texts or God knew she'd say yes, so it was prophetic. But what if we just stopped to sit in this moment with this young woman. Even in the Iron Age, in an androcentric and patriarchal culture, Mary knows her body belongs to her. She doesn't ask what her intended will say, what her father will say, or about the shame that this will likely bring on her, her family, and their name. Instead, she testifies to the integrity of her body under her control. In her question, how can this be? I hear, since I have not done and will not do what you are suggesting, just in case you are really here to defraud me and my intended, how will this thing work? I see her withholding consent at this moment. She has questions and has not agreed to do this, glorious messianic prophecy notwithstanding. Not yet. In a world which did not necessarily recognize her sole ownership of her body and did not understand our notions of consent and rape, this very young woman had the dignity and the courage and the temerity to question a messenger of the living God about what would happen to her body before giving her consent. And this is important. That gets lost when we rush to her capitulation. Before Mary said yes, she said, wait a minute, explain this to me. A close reading shows her presumably powerless in every way, but sufficiently empowered to talk back to the emissary of God, determine for herself and grant what consent she could, no matter the power of the one asking. And yet in that moment, after being told by someone else what would happen to her body, she became not just the mother of God, but the holy sister to those of us who do say, me too. To acknowledge the difficulty of this story does not diminish it. Rather, it is a holy vehicle for us to have necessary conversations about the importance of consent, body autonomy, and power dynamics. But these are not the only necessary conversations this passage helps facilitate. If we, as Dr. Gaffney suggests, take a minute to sit with Mary in this story, we also sit with her fear. This is, after all, while the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. We, we only tell each other not to be afraid when we are afraid just like we tell each other to calm down 
when someone is decidedly not calm. Being afraid, being fearful, is not something we usually talk much about, but the sacred story invites us to do just that. Mary had plenty of reasons to fear. She is pregnant and unwed, which would have, been, would have brought dishonor to both her family and to Joseph's. And this was grounds, at best, for Joseph to dismiss her, leaving her economically and socially vulnerable, or at worst, her execution by stoning. And even if we were able to set all of that aside, the actual ask of her is rather terrifying. Mary is being asked to raise someone who will be great, called the son of the Most High and reign over the house of Jacob forever. The polite thing would have been for God to let Mary have had at least one or two other practice kids. I mean, most adults need assistance properly installing a child's car seat. So this whole God is asking you to raise someone to whose kingdom there will be no end seems pretty daunting. I'm, I'm just saying that there seems to be a lot of room for failure, which is certainly something plenty of us are afraid of. We are afraid of failing our families, our work, our community, our significant other, our parents, our dreams, ourselves. Or at least failing was one of the many answers given a few weeks ago when I asked for your help in writing liturgy for this season. What are you afraid of? The question read across the top of the page. And here are some of the things you wrote in. We are afraid that we are creating an unlivable earth, that the generations that come after us will not have access to the beauty of creation that we do. We are afraid of the future of schools and education. We are afraid of leaving the world before our children are grown. We are afraid of dying young. We are afraid of dying old. We are afraid of the growing hate in this world. We are afraid of the unchecked anger all around us. We are afraid that we will not find our purpose. We are afraid of losing our parents. We are afraid of tyranny. We are afraid that we won't be able to get ourselves out of the hole we've dug as individuals, as a nation. We are afraid COVID could shut the world down again. We are afraid of increasing violence. We are afraid. In her book, This Here Flesh, author Cole Arthur Riley writes about different kinds of fears. There is a fear that is attached to the past. Maybe you once encountered some terror that made such an incision that the mere memory of it can drag you back into fear, traumas and triggers. There is present fear. This is a situation unfolding in the present or at least in the moments following the present. This kind of fear is often wrapped up in pain or survival. Something immediate is at stake. You aren't waiting for the horror, it is here. 
there is nothing left to wonder about but how much the horror will take. Then there are those things we call fear themselves, concerns of future abandonment, embarrassment, death, or loss. I think this is the form most hidden from ourselves, and this is because fears tend to hide behind one another. Ask 50 people what they are afraid of and see how many say heights or spiders and how few of them have the presence of self to say that they are afraid of abandonment or of a deteriorating mind. I am not afraid of snakes. I am afraid of pain, of immobilization, of death. Telling the deepest truth of the fear requires thorough acquaintance with our own stories and interior lives, and it can be so easily and it can so easily bleed into this next form of fear, a fear that endures past particular situations and can very nearly transcend time, anxiety. Fear becomes anxiety when it makes its home in you. Its chief attachment is not memory or villain or situation or future. Its chief attachment and subject is you. This strange and imprecise fear can torment the body and enshroud all other fear experiences. As an antagonist, fear can disrupt the most sacred patterns of rest and restoration. Fear reminds us that we are not in control, that there is far more in life that is inevitable than preventable. In response, we grasp and cling to what control we have. When the coronavirus pandemic began and the stay-at-home orders were announced, it would, have, it would have been reasonable to expect a season of rest, a certain slowness. But instead, we observed the opposite. Most of the people I know actually began to work more. Anxiety increased. And in the wake of global fear, we constructed illusions of safety and control. The more we habitualize using our fear to grasp at control, the more disrupted our rhythms of rest become. When my friend's ma was fed up, she used to mumble, I might be limping through the valley of the shadow of death. A reference to the 23rd Psalm what I skipped over in the psalm she was referencing time and time again is the sacred praxis that comes with it. The psalmist says, God makes me lie down in green pastures. God leads me beside still waters. And I find it beautiful that in the face of terror, God doesn't bid us toward courage as we might perceive it. Instead, God draws us toward fear's essential sister which is rest, a sister who is not meant to replace fear, but to exist together in tension and harmony with it. For fear's origin is not evil, though evil certainly wields it against our souls daily. My father says, sometimes being afraid can save your life. He pulls my ear towards him and mumbles, let the fear in. Just don't let it run you. 
Just as it can be the threatening hand that holds you in bondage, it can also protect you when the journey towards liberation requires perceptive choice and a certain instinct in the face of the unknown. No one would deny it is a good thing that we are terrified to jump from building to building. Fear steadies our impulses and warns us of danger. We might consider it more akin to a watchman than an enemy. And of course, Riley concludes, there is a fear that leans more towards awe than terror, a kind of delight. Your gut plummets within you as you drop from a bungee cord, the drum of a heart turning corners in a corn maze. I believe fear has the holy potential to draw out awe in us to lead us into deeper patterns of protection and trust, to mold us into people engaged in the unknown, capable of making mystery of it instead of terror. Eventually, Mary's fear did draw out awe in her, led her to a deeper pattern of protection and trust, and we can hear it in her song, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But Mary does not sing the Magnificat in the presence of the angel. Her insides were still shaking. But we know the rest of the story. The next thing Mary does is go to Elizabeth's house Quite literally, the next verse, when the angel disappears, says, In those days Mary set out and went with haste to Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And that's because Mary needed a soft place to land. She needed to have someone to help her hold her fear to have someone there to manage the anxiety of uncertainty, to have someone who would sit beside her. As Cole Arthur Riley continues, we stave off fear in its most dangerous forms when we allow our agony to be held safely by a number of others. Turning on the light doesn't make the monsters disappear from under our beds, but it reminds us who has power over the switch. Sometimes watching someone else flip the switch liberates your own hand to do likewise. Who will tremble with you when you feel your insides pressing against your chest and your hands start to dance and your voice becomes another voice. Who, who will put you to sleep? You are not foolish to fear. You would be foolish not to. When you've seen monsters, the holes, the, the flesh of this world peeled back and bloody, it turns out that we are all shaking. We are all afraid. It was in the presence of another that Mary found courage. 
It was only then that she trusted that God would fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. And so it is with us, beloveds, when our insides shake, when we get news that overwhelms us, when uncertainty and fatigue and anxiety will not let us rest. Perhaps we try something else. Maybe we find someone to tell. Maybe we let someone sit with us, let them check for the monsters under our bed. Let someone hold our hand and tell us it will be all right. Do not be afraid, beloveds. This is the season of Emmanuel, God with us. And we're sharing a pew. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m., with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.